In Luke 3, we find Jesus' genealogy. Now, we've already seen Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, so they're exactly the same, right? Well, actually, they're a little bit different. Now, some people freak out and they use this as an excuse that, ah, the Bible is wrong or whatever, but actually, they're both right. See, first, in biblical genealogy, whenever you have a son, it's sometimes one generation apart, but it could also be a few generations later. So that right there explains why some names are included and some names are omitted. But it could also be because each gospel writer had a specific audience and therefore a specific purpose. Remember, Matthew was written for Jewish people, so the genealogy is going to begin with Abraham and it's going to end with Jesus. Notice too that the names mentioned are the kings of the Old Testament. This this is to show that Jesus has an ancestry of royalty and that he really is the seed of David as prophesied. But Luke's gospel, however, is written for the Gentiles. So rather than focusing on Abraham, Luke actually goes all the way back to Adam to show that God's kingdom includes all nations. Also, Luke is very literal. So while Matthew may show his family ancestry, it's likely that Luke here is literally including the biological and not necessarily the adoptive fathers going all the way back to Adam. And finally, it's also possible that it's actually Mary's genealogy with Heli being her father and then so forth. So there you go, a little bit about Jesus' genealogy. And that's enough today for our historical minute. I tell you, I love Mike, and he does all that stuff for us. That's awesome. <laughs> Let me open with prayer. God, we love you so much, and we just ask that you be with us here tonight, that you send your spirit down in power, and that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, that you speak to us, that you instruct us, that you confront us in different things, and also that you remind us always that you've got us, and that you're with us, and that you're rooting for us, and that you've got us as we go through this life of ours. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the forgiveness that he brought us, and we thank you for the strengthening that he gives us, and we thank you for just loving us that much. And so, Father, we thank you for all those things today, and we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we're going to pick up in Luke today, Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 41, and I'll just begin. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, now, it's kind of a curious thing. You think that this was just kind of a, a faithful family in, in Jerusalem and, or in, in Judea, and, and they were. In fact, there was a law that God gives us in, in the Exodus, I think, that we read through, that every male in Jerusalem was to go to Jerusalem, in Israel, was to go to Jerusalem how many times a year? Anybody remember? Three times a year. For the three festivals, right? And they were to do that to remind themselves, against the reminder, right? To remind themselves of what God has done of what God has promised, and that God's still with them. And so at least three times, they're supposed to go more often, but if you live far off, you didn't go more often, you just went those three times a year. If you were in other parts of the Mediterranean, almost everybody tried to go at least once a year. Hence at Pentecost, you see people from all different nations arriving in Jerusalem and those kind of things. So it was just a pilgrimage that people would make at least once a year. If you were in Israel, probably three times a year. If, if you were close to Jerusalem, probably every Sunday or every Saturday. Okay, so they were going to Jerusalem, for the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he, they went up according to custom. Now, the interesting thing about 12 years old is at 13, does anybody know what happens at 13 in the Jewish uh, religious family? 
bar mitzvah, right? It's where they become a man, and so to speak, where they become a, a rightful member of the synagogue, where they become a rightful member of society. It's kind of a big deal. And, and so Jesus would go at 12. They often would go even earlier than that to kind of learn what they were supposed to do, right? To be instructed a little bit. It was kind of like they got their confirmation bit in when they would go. And so that when it became time, they would know exactly what to do and, and what they were agreeing to and all those different things. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, you read that, you think, these are bad parents, but just see a little perspective, okay? And I know I've shared this before, and I know in today's world, right, we have a hard time letting him go and play in the cul-de-sac that we live in, right? I mean, it's hard for us to do that. But it was just a generation before my dad, when he could go all over the, or, or I could go all over my neighborhood, right? And my parents didn't know where I was, they just knew I was so somewhere in the neighborhood because they defined very specific streets for me not to pass, right, because there's too many cars. And at dinner time, I just had to be around the house so I could hear my mom telling us it was dinner time. If for some reason I missed that, I got into trouble, okay? But it was a generation before that that my dad could go all over the city, and a generation before that when you hear stories of my grandpa just going all over northern Michigan doing just weird stuff with his friends. And so, just perspective, it's not always been the, the helicopter parenting that we do today. And not for... And part of it's just that we know too much about what the world's doing today, right? That's just part of it. So the reality is when they would go on these pilgrimages to Jerusalem, they would go with their whole family and usually whole communities. And so everybody in the community was kind of in charge of watching over all the kids, okay? And everybody kind of had their eye out for everybody else and, and all that kind of stuff. Also on the way back, usually in these caravans, the women and the younger kids would go first, I get a little bit of a head start, and then the guys and the, and the older kids would go with them in, in, in back. And at 12, you could just see Mary thinking, well, he's probably with his dad. And dad thinking, oh, he's probably with his mom. And then they, you know, they get to their resting spot, and they're looking around, and you know, then panic starts to happen. And they go back to Jerusalem, and that's what happens. And three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. That three days is probably one day going one day back and a whole day looking out for him. They find him in the temple. And there they find him, and this is what he was doing, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. One of the things I'm going to ask you to do is I, I want you to remember that Jesus is still 100% man and 100% God. That all the way through his life, that was true, okay? Um, so here's Jesus, a 12-year-old, and he's in there, he's talking to these scribes and these Pharisees, and he's asking questions. And he kind of just stretches the imagination, thinking about what he was asking. Do you think he was curious about stuff? Or do you think he was kind of asking them questions in preparation for what was to come? Getting their minds going, getting them thinking about stuff, and then answering in ways, scriptural ways, that forced them to think and to ponder. Right? It was just 12 years earlier when all of a sudden that, all that ruckus, what, baby born in Bethlehem and Herod trying to kill all the kids. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. And now you got Jesus in the temple and he's asking questions and everybody's listening to him is just amazed and blown away by this kid. But his parents weren't all that jazzed. And so it says this, it says, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's a significant statement because it shows an awareness by Jesus of whose kid he was. 
that he was God. He wasn't just a normal kid that kind of happened along for a period of time and then all of a sudden on his baptism realized that he was God's kid, right? He knew it the whole time. He had an awareness or at least a growing awareness of whose kid he was and what he was supposed to do and the, and the plan that God had for him. It just wasn't time yet. And so he's going along and as this kid, and, and anyway, he, the parents didn't get this, right? That even though Mary heard all the stuff, even though they knew he was God's son, I mean, you know, I mean, imagine them telling you that about one of your kids. You're like, yeah, that's really cool. And then, you know, about 12 or 13, you're thinking, I don't know. You know, you, know, you just forget those things. And, and so Jesus didn't ever forget. And so he's redirecting mom and dad toward that. But in obedience, right, it says they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. He went with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus is amazing when you look at his walk to the cross, right? Nobody in their right mind would want to do that except Jesus, out of love for his father, wanted to complete the purpose that he had for him, right? From the very beginning, he wanted to complete this mission that God sent him to earth for, which was to save you and me because he loved us just as much as his father did. And they're the same, so it gets complicated, right? But the same kind of thing. And so all the way through his life, that was his purpose. That was his mission, but when he was a kid, understanding it wasn't time, he was completely submissive to his mom and dad. I want you to understand something, too. At the time that they went through bar mitzvah, one of the things in the, in the Jewish educational system was is they taught the kids, they, they taught them to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, during their first 12 years of life, right? And they were supposed to memorize it, they were supposed to be able to recite it to their teachers, all those things. Every kid in Jerusalem went through, all, all the boys went through that in Jerusalem. And then upon bar mitzvah, if they were really good, if they showed a lot of promise, some of the Pharisees would ask them to be their disciples, and they would train them more. If they weren't asked, they went into the company business or mom and dad's business or whatever it was, and they did different things. But if they were the elite of the elite, they were asked to be disciples of the Pharisees, and they would train them, and they'd teach them more and more and more. Now, think about this. Jesus is blowing these guys away at 12. Do you think he had some offers from some of these Pharisees? To come follow him? I mean, we don't know for sure, but you got to think he did. So why in the world didn't he become a disciple of one of these Pharisees? Because he came from a poor family. Because he needed help mom and dad. And as he did, he grew and in, increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. And don't you just have a, a little bit, don't you get a little bit impressed sometimes when you see kids that could be all this or whatever and but they're putting their family first or they're, or they're taking care of their kids first or they're, they're doing something that's just more important than all of this. And part of you just stands back and think, man, they're giving up stuff, but how amazing that they're doing that for the sake of who or whoever, right? And so part of this is also understanding some of Jesus' opportunities, but in obedience to his parents, out of care and love for his parents. It wasn't just that he was submissive to them and what they asked him to do, but all the way through and he became known in the area, because we'll see it later in the Gospels, as the carpenter's son, as the one who helped his dad. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, this puts it around AD 26, uh, just for those of you guys who are following along, there's a new Caesar in town, okay? Tiberius Caesar is the one who followed Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the great emperor of the Roman Empire uh, for a lot of years. Um, Tiberius is the one who followed him. There's mixed reviews on Tiberius, but he was in his 15th year. You also know that Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee. Pilate just got to town in AD 26, just got to town. Why is that significant? 
because he got to town and everything started unrolling. John the Baptist started doing ministry for about three years, got to Jesus, Jesus started doing ministry all during the 10 years that he was in Jerusalem. Can you imagine what he saw during his time there? He saw the world change. He saw everything upended and a new, and a new order begin all under his kind of supervision during that time. He saw the beginning of persecution. He saw it all. He was there from 26 to 36, the time that John the Baptist got started. And I don't know if God was waiting for him to get there or what, but there was a season in Jerusalem where the leaders were just right for all this to go down. Uh, Caesar or Herod being the Tetrarch or Galilee, uh, just a little history. I, I don't know if I shared this before or not. In AD, remember the Herod the Great, the guy that was uh, in power during Jesus' birth, the one that killed all the kids, the one that was kind of super crazy and, and paranoid and killed off half his family. During his reign, there was an outcry by the people in Jerusalem to get rid of the guy because he was nuts, and they didn't want him to reign anymore. And so they sent a delegation to Rome and asked them to send a new guy, you know, send somebody else to rule over them. And he died in 84, so it wasn't immediate, but in 86, they set up a Roman governor for the first time ever in Jerusalem. Before that, it was always under the reign of one of the Herods. Uh, the rest of the, the region, Galilee, was under Herod's control. Uh, Duma and, and some of these other areas surrounding, all under the, some of the different sons of Herod, but Jerusalem and Judea were now under the control of the Roman governor, Pilate. And so he gets to town at this time, the rest of them, they go through the different leaders of the area. And then he says this in verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Usually there's just one high priest. There was just one high priest. It was Caiaphas, okay? Um, what's interesting about the addition of Annas is in AD 6, right about the same time a new governor got into town, uh, they deposed him. They said goodbye. Or wait, it wasn't, he started in 86. Uh, in AD 15, so it was one of the, the governors that preceded Pilate. In AD 15, they deposed Annas as high priest. I don't know what he did. I searched for that information. I couldn't figure out what he did, but they deposed him, got rid of him, said he could never be high priest again. So Annas, being the rightful high priest, says, well, I'll just put one of my five sons in charge and have them be the high priest. And over the next three years, all five of them somehow made their way to the high priesthood, but none of them stuck. Couldn't, couldn't find out the information. But finally, he finds a kid in his son-in-law, Caiaphas, they could be high priest and was accepted by all, and he ended up reigning all the way through this time. Anna still had a lot of control over everything that, they were, that was happening. He was kind of, all these other guys were kind of puppets of him. Even if you remember the passion narrative, whose house did they go to first to try Jesus? It was Annas' house, the, high pri or the former high priest. Okay, so he's just sharing the leadership. It says, during this time, God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's interesting about that is in the Jewish culture, they didn't baptize people. You, know, you got circumcised to become part of God's family, but they didn't baptize people except for the Gentiles that would come to faith. Okay, so all the converts from, from Gentile lands, they would undergo a proselyte baptism which means they were cleansed head to toe, right, to get rid of the Gentile filth, right, and all their sin because they were viewed as just horrible people, right? So they were cleansed before God and they were wiped clean and they were set forgiven before God and now they were good to be part of his, his family. What John the Baptist was doing is he had the gall to offer this to Abraham's kids, 
to the Jews. And he was just saying it doesn't matter if you're Abraham's kid or a Gentile. Before God, who was angry at our sin, we need to be forgiven. And that was his message. He was going out and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near, right? Repent, we've got to get our house in order. And this resonated with the people in Israel. It would be hard for us to imagine that resonating today with too many, right? You see the guy in the cardboard sign at the SU games, turn or burn, you know, that doesn't get a lot of receptivity. But they had some different things that were going on as commonalities in, in Israel. Number one, they believed strongly in an ultimate truth. Number two, they believed strongly in a God. And number three, they knew from history and from experience that when their God got angry with them because of their disobedience, bad things happened. The Pharisees, we lived in a very puritanical culture at this time. The Pharisees, their whole job was to go out and tell Israel to turn from their sin, essentially, right? That you've got to do this and you've got to do this and nobody could do it right. So everybody was feeling guilty and everybody was feeling bad. There's a lot of people just kind of frustrated with the relationship with the Lord. So when John the Baptist started proclaiming a forgiveness of sins, not a continually heaping on of all the things that you had to do, but a forgiveness of sins, the people in Israel went nuts. And they ran to him in the middle of the desert. He wasn't in the cities, in the middle of the desert to hear this man preach and to receive that baptism so that they might be forgiven before God, made right before God, so that they could begin again. It was incredible what he was doing and turning the hearts of the people back to God. His main, uh, one of the things he would say is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John the Baptist saying, man, I'm preparing everybody for what's to come. Salvation is coming to you guys. Salvation is coming. There's now a way to heaven. There's now a way to be right to God. Salvation is coming. The Messiah is coming, and I'm getting everything ready. You see even today how important that message is? You know, I've shared this before over and over, but part of the the struggle with our society today is that we don't acknowledge that there's really sin. My buddy, I think, said it beautifully. He says, do you really think God still cares about the sin stuff? Yeah. And if we don't see our sin, it's hard for us to see our need for a Savior, isn't it? And then as we look at Jesus, we don't know why such a big deal what is he saving us from? And then we start thinking of him as somebody who just shows us how to good ways to live, right? He's like a good prophet or a good moral teacher or he makes things easier or, or he loves us and he does love us and, all, and he is a good moral teacher and all these things are true, but we're missing the main deal. See, all the way through scripture and even in John the Baptist's words and even in Jesus' words, there's, he, he just identifies a divine hostility toward all evil. Do we get that? There, there is a divine hostility toward all you. God is good. He is holy. He hates evil. It, it, just, it just is. And when we pursue the evil, not only are there consequences, but it saddens the hearts of God, heart of God, right? And so John the Baptist is just saying, look, we've experienced God's hardness in the past when we've turned away from him. Holy cow, we could say the same thing, couldn't we? Every time we've gone a different direction than what God has called us and we pursue sin at any level, don't we make our lives more complicated? I mean, every one of us could say the same thing as Israel. We've experienced those times being away from God where it's just hard and it's just complicated and we make a mess of things. 
And it's upon returning to him that we find that healing and that forgiveness and those new beginnings that help set us a different way forward. John the Baptist is saying, look, we've been there. Repent, because God loves you and he wants to make this right, but you gotta say sorry, right? You've gotta be forgiven. And so he's calling people back and this way and the other. And he's saying, I'm doing this to prepare you for the one to come. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. In the other gospels, he kind of narrows this to just the Pharisees. But tell me how this sermon would go across. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, right? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to even turn these stones and raise up children for Abraham. Amen, pastor. You know, brood of vipers. Just insult the congregation as you're getting started. That's awesome. In the other Gospels, it says he was specifically talking to the Pharisees who were curious about John the Baptist's message. I mean, he was driving people back to obedience, right? So keep fruit, keep, uh, produce fruits in keeping with your repentance. In other words, repentance is kind of a curious word. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's saying, God, I'm so sorry. I never want to do this again. Help me, and this is sins over here, help me turn from my sin and go this way. And I may fail a hundred times at trying to walk away from it, but but know my intention is to never do this again. That's what repentance actually is. It's not just saying I'm sorry and I'm gonna do it tomorrow, same time, same place, right? It's I'm sorry and with everything in me, I'm gonna try never to do it again. Because I know this made you sad, because I know this is destroying my life, because I know this is not what you want me to be as your disciple, because I know you love me and I know you want what's better for me and I know all this stuff and so with everything in me, I'm gonna try to go this way. And we're imperfect sinners, right? And we stink at different things and we especially stink at overcoming sin and so we struggle with this but eventually God promises in that forgiveness and in that strengthening to help us overcome that, right? And then a new sin replaces it then we work on that one and so on and so forth and so we go until we're in heaven one day, right? Okay, so, so he's saying, um, you brood of vipers. So the Pharisees thought themselves a little bit better than the masses. I mean, they were teachers. They were one that kept, you know, the periphery of the law, the ones that, the rules that they came up with almost to perfection. They kind of lost the heart of the law, but they were all about the to-dos. And so they would look at what they do and they would say, I'm better than them, right? And so if God's grading on a curve and he must be, right, we are probably okay. So they were curious about this message of John the Baptist. He was drawing people back to repentance, which was good. They loved that. But then he was doing this baptism that was meant only for Gentiles and he was giving it to Jewish people and they didn't like that. And then they would come and he said, you're the worst of all people. You're the brood of vipers. Who warned you to come here? You don't even think you need forgiveness. Why are you here? And so he continued to, to and so even now there is laid at the root of the trees. Every, no, let me for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he gives them this imagery, God's coming in judgment. It's a come to Jesus moment in every way, right? God's coming in judgment. And are you with God or are you not with God? Because he's coming with an ax and he's gonna thin out the forest and those that are with him, he's gonna continue to blossom and those that aren't, he's gonna chop down and throw away into the fire. Are you right with God or not? That's still a true message, is it? It's a hard message. It's not a message that we usually like to hear, but God is really serious about our souls. He's really serious about us being in heaven. He wants us to be there. He said Jesus, his only son, so that you could be there. And all he says is trust me. 
Follow me and I'll get you there safely. Trust me that you're forgiven. Trust me that I'll be with you. Trust me that I'll strengthen you. Trust me that I'm working all things for your good. Trust me, trust me, trust me. It's not a high, high bar, right? Except that we stink at trust. But he just says, trust me. You don't have to climb to the top of a high mountain. You don't have to go to battle and overcome this enemy. Just trust me. And everything is yours. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Because they're freaking out. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. Tunics were something that you'd wear, especially at night, to keep you warm. Sometimes you wear two or three tunics to keep you warmer, especially in the cold times. But there was a lot of poor folks that didn't even have one. And so he's just saying, man, look out for more than just yourself. If you see somebody in need, take care of them. To the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to them, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more taxes than you're authorized to do. And tax collectors were, were uh, not favorite people of the, Jewish, of the Jewish people, right? Because these were often native-borns, Jewish people that would take on these positions under these main tax collectors. And the way it worked is these main tax collectors would kind of do a bidding system to see who could collect taxes for a certain area. And so they'd always, you know, bid as high as they could for Rome. And then, you know, the high bidder usually would get it. And then they would go out and they would add to that a little bit, you know, their costs and their expenses to make it all happen. And then, you know, to get a little profit, they'd add a little bit more. And then, you know, if they wanted to buy the new house, they'd add a little bit more. And, and they were just robbing the people of Israel in different places worse than others. And then you'd have these tax collectors like Matthew, right, who were kind of contractors. And they would go out and work under these main tax collectors. And they would go to the people and they would think Sheriff of Nottingham, right? They would go and they'd, they'd just levy the taxes. This was a foreign entity that they were gathering taxes for, and they were being dishonest and patting their own pockets. We don't like the IRS. Can you imagine? Had Russia coming and patting their pockets in America. We would not like them either, right? Or whoever it was. So they hated these people. And they especially hated the turncoats, the, the children of, of Jerusalem, right? They especially hated those guys that would go and work for Rome. And it wasn't just the tax collectors. It was the soldiers, too, Native-born kids that would go and serve as soldiers to protect the tax collectors as they're going out and gathering these taxes. So the tax collector said, came to be baptized, and he said to them, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. He didn't say, get a, Go get a new job. He didn't say, Don't collect taxes. He just said, Start being honest. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? And they said to him, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. If you were a Roman soldier, you were the law, okay? And if you really liked that coat that, that, that Walt had on, you just say, Walt, give me your coat. Walt would say, No. What did you call me? You know, and then you throw him in jail and you take his coat. That was the way it worked. I mean, you just kind of did what you wanted. You leveraged your power, your position, and you took what you wanted from different people. And some soldiers did that more than the others. And so to pad their pockets and to be paid what they felt was a fair wage and all those different things, Jesus, or John the Baptist says, be content with your wages. Didn't tell him to go get a new job, not, to not enforce the law or anything like that. Just said, stop being dishonest. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. And the strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. That's an interesting phrase, the strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. And I always wondered where that came from. And it actually came from um, a saying that a disciple of a Pharisee had, right? They were called to be kind of a slave to the Pharisee, to serve them in every possible way except 
they would never be called on to unstrap the sandal of a Pharisee, right? Because it was considered too demeaning to unlace their shoes, right? It was just too demeaning. They would never be asked that. And so out of all the things that John the Baptist could have said, he says, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. Not that I wouldn't be called to do it. I'm just not even good enough to do that thing that is so demeaning for everybody else. He's saying, I'm not the Messiah. Guys, there's a guy coming. And he's going to blow your socks off. And he's going to save you and your souls and the world. And he's coming just around the corner. We've got to get ready for him. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear this threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the winnowing fork was, okay, you think about a field and it's all been ground up. And so they would take this and they would throw it up to the air and the seed would fall right back down. But all that extra stuff would float away in the wind. They would throw it up in the face of the wind and have it just blow away out of their fields and they would gather up the rest. I think God often does that sometimes with us. You know, we, we get a little wonky with some of the things that we've decided to do, some things that are destroying our lives and, and God just kind of presents situations into our lives that call us to decide, isn't it? Are we gonna continue to make it in our life a mess? Are we continue to rebel against him or are we gonna follow him? Or sometimes, are we just going to trust him? You know, we just had this commitment thing. I remember it was my first year in ministry, and I was, it was, I was actually getting ready to, to go declare bankruptcy because I was in a, and, and I just didn't make very much money. I had, I still remember the amount, $530 a month in loans, and uh, I was in a one-bedroom apartment, and I lived, you know, a block from the church and I wasn't using much gas, you know, but I just wasn't making it. Um, the, there's, the dollars just weren't there. And I remember one Sunday I gave a, a sermon on tithing. And I'm just going to confess, I was struggling at that time. And I, I remember sharing it and just feeling horrible after and talking to my senior pastor. And he goes, well, do you believe that God's got you on this? I mean, do you believe all the promises he's made about tithing and that he, he, he blesses you in, in, in response? And do you believe that he gives you peace and response to trusting him? And I said, I do. Then he's saying, maybe you should trust him. So I did. I didn't know I was going to do it. I just trusted him. And, and every day since, I've seen God do miracles in my finances. At the end of that year, the church gave me a raise. You know, for how much? $530. It was nuts. To the penny. $530 raise. A few years later, God provided a way for me to get a house. I couldn't afford a house. He brought a member in the church that says, how much can you afford? I couldn't even afford the, the $85,000 houses that were out there, but I said, oh, $85,000? So I'll build you a house. He built me a $120,000 house for $85,000. I keep seeing God do extraordinary things. He is faithful to his promises, but the question is, will we trust him? It's hard to trust him. It's scary to trust him. It's terrifying to trust him sometimes because we like to be in control of so much stuff. We just do. But if God's real, if you believe his promises are true, my encouragement to you guys is to trust him with more in your life and watch him do things that you couldn't imagine. It's so cool. And, and the reason I get so jazzed up about this tithing thing is because I've seen him do it. Do you guys see that? I've seen him do one miracle after another after another. I don't know how we're going to send our kids to college, but I just trust that God's got it. He's going to figure out a way. And when my kids go to college, you're like, yeah, Pastor, I guess, was right. You know? <laughs> I mean, so I just, I just encourage you in those, these kind of things. And so, anyway, he's saying that Jesus is coming. 
So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked them up in prison. Now this is a little bit out of chronological order, but it seems like Luke just wants to kind of finish the the John narrative. Actually, John was locked up about two, maybe two years into Jesus' ministry, um, so it was a little further in. Um, But he was locked up because he told Herod that he was immoral for marrying his brother's wife. He got divorced to his wife, his brother had to get divorced from his wife, and then they got married. And that was not cool. That was not right. It was probably made his brother sad. It probably made his wife all the... And he called him on it. And, you know, you're king, or at least king of this area, so you lock the guy up. And that's what he did, and it put a stark end to John the Baptist's ministry in that area. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So even Jesus was baptized, and that's always kind of a curious thing because he was without sin, so why in the world did he get baptized? And I just encourage you to think of what his mission was. His mission was to do what? To die for the sin of the world. So from very early on in his ministry, he assimilated he, right, with the people who were sinners, with those that needed a Savior. He was going to bear the weight of everybody, and so for proper, I guess, identification with them, he was baptized just like they were. Sinners in need of redeeming, even though he was without sin. He would follow that mission all the way through until eventually dying on a cross for sins that weren't his, but he did so so that he could save the world. And then he begins this, let me address some of these questions. If Jesus knew that what was to come for him, do you believe that he had innocence or was mature? Well, 100% God, 100% Jesus. I I think it was probably a... um, I don't know. There was something in Jesus from what's recorded always that just wanted to be obedient to his father, that that understood the mission that he had before him. When we're going to go into the temptations in a little bit, and and they were were very real for him, or they wouldn't have been temptations, right? And so there was probably a a struggle to to give up the 100% man part, right? But Jesus seemed all the way through to say, I've got a greater mission, and I'm doing this because I love the people that I've that I've been with, because I want them in heaven, because God sent me to save them, right? And this wasn't the be-all and end-all. I know sometimes we think our world is, and, and our house is as good as it gets, or whatever, or our, our bank accounts are as good as it gets, or, or our vacations are as good as it gets, but Jesus had a different perspective, right? He, he knew heaven was his home, and he knew that he's in charge there, right? I mean, he knew what he was working for, and it wasn't this earth, And so I think he always seemed to get that as he was going through life. It seemed like he even got it in obedience to his parents all the way through. It seemed like he got it when he was talking to the Pharisees. But all the way through his ministry, even early on when his mom says, okay, just make wine here, you know, for this this party and we'll get to that. Um, He says, it's not time yet, mom. So he knew there was a timing element. He knew that his mission, his purpose was. He knew what he came to do. So I think there was a maturity, I guess, that that goes all the way through. And the second question was throughout the Old New Testament, Mary gets... Lots of recognition. Why doesn't Joseph? I don't know. Other than the fact that Joseph died early on, you know, somewhere in in Jesus' childhood. And so he's not recorded during the Passion. He's not recorded during Jesus' final ministry phase because he just doesn't seem to be around, okay? Um, Which just adds a whole element to Jesus' ministry, right? He was the 
oldest son, he was supposed to be taking care of the family and he was out doing this ministry. So it was a whole different thing there. But, but I just think it's because somewhere along the line, Joseph passed on. And so you just don't hear as much about him moving forward. You heard about him a bunch during his birth. You heard about him during Jesus when he was 12. And so somewhere after that, he passed and it was before Jesus' ministry. So I think that's why you just don't hear a whole lot. I think both of these guys were awesome. I mean, the faith that they had in God was extraordinary. They risked everything to be obedient to the Father. They risked their lives. They risked their, their livelihood. They risked everything. They are people to, be, uh, to hold in, in, in honor, right, for, for their obedience to God. They are not people to worship. Okay, let me just be clear on that. But, but they are people to just go, wow, I love that they trusted God. Mary, you're going to have God's son, all right? I, I, I wish that would be a response for everybody, right? I know I'm going over here. I wish that would be a response from everybody. God calls us to do something, and we're like, all right, let's do it. But I know that's just not true, right? He calls us to pray, and do we pray all the time? I know you guys do, but, you know, the morning services, they struggle, right? And, and God calls us to be in his word all the time, meditate on it night and day, right? It, do we do that? Do we read the Bible every day? I know you guys do. Again, it's the morning. So it, it, God calls us to tithe and to trust him with our money. You know, I know you, again, you guys do, but there's lots of people that struggle with that, right? Wouldn't it be cool, though, if God just called us to do stuff and we said, okay? And then we got to see God do cool stuff. That's God's call to us tonight. Follow me, and you'll get to see me do cool stuff. It says this in, the, in, in, in Paul's letters. He said, we are saved by grace through faith. What's faith? Trusting God. We're saved because we believe that Jesus did everything so that we could be with him in heaven. We, we, we are saved because we believe that Jesus is sufficient, that he's got us, that he loves us, that, he sent his, that God sent his son so that we could live. We are saved because of that trust. He asks us just to trust him for more and see heaven open. I, I, it's just the truth of it, and I just wish that upon all of you, and so that's my message for today, and I'm gonna pray now. All right. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for your love that sent him, and we thank you for all the things that he's taught us about who you are and your amazingness of your love, and, he, and we thank you, Lord, for, for forgiving us for every time we blow it, and we do blow it, Lord. We blow it a lot, and we, we fall short of your glory, and sometimes we feel so far removed from, from being deserving, but the reality is we don't deserve it, but you give it to us anyway. You give it to us because it's not based on us. It's based on Jesus. And so we celebrate him as our Lord. We celebrate him as our forgiver. We celebrate him as the one who is with us always. We celebrate him today, Lord. And we thank you for his grace and for his love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.